Awesome. Go ahead and pull out your Bibles this morning. All right. Our worship team's awesome. Thanks, guys. Okay, you can open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in your seat, and uh, you don't have to leave it there. You can take it with you if you want. If you don't have a Bible or if you just want another one, you can take it. Open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, are you ready for Bible study this morning? I, I feel like this message is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do around here. It's going to be like, as I was working this, this week and, and praying and preparing and everything, I was just like, man, God, this feels like, this feels like just class, classwork, but in the best way, because this classroom results in life transformation, which is awesome. Front row is ready for life transformation. Come on. So uh, we're going to kind of put on uh, just, we're going to put on those lenses this morning. We're going to have Bible study. We're going to go through a whole bunch of stuff and learn some things about the Bible. And I hopefully am going to do more than just get loud, like I feel like sometimes I usually do. So uh, it's going to be good. Second Corinthians chapter three is where we're going to be spending most of our time. We'll be a few other places, but uh, can we do that this morning? Are we going to be all right? Okay, we're, gonna, we're finishing or we're continuing. I thought last week was the end of our series, Jesus People, but here we are again talking about Jesus People. This is the word that God's given us for 2018 as a church, this invitation and challenge to be a people simply defined by Jesus, not by religion, race, politics, the name of our church, or socioeconomics, none of those things, our opinions, our past, our gifts, anything. What does it look like to be a people completely wrapped up in Jesus? So that's what we're exploring. We've been digging into that the first three weeks, and I think it's going to be a fun year exploring what it looks like to be Jesus people. God's been doing a lot in my life personally, and I hope he has been doing a lot in yours as well. I want to preach to you this morning a message. You can put this at the top of your notes. forgot to tell you to take out your notes, but you can do that now. Get your notes out, and you can put this at the top of your page, phone, whatever. Putting a face to the name. Putting a face to the name. Jesus people putting a face to the name. Feels good to put a face to the name, huh? Ever been there? I remember when we were moving here to Indianapolis to start this church, we were good friends with Chad and Karis Frege, uh, who are amazing. Everybody said amen. amen. We were good friends with them from a while ago, and uh, we called them and said, hey, we're coming to plant this church, and they started telling us about friends in their life that they thought might be interested in uh, hearing more about the church, what we were going to be a part of. We kept hearing names like Mark and Lindsay Frazee. We're like, I don't know who Mark and Lindsay Frazee are. Uh, we, I think we even talked on the phone, but then once we finally got to sit down and put a face to the name, it sure felt good to sit, to sit at their table and talk and put a face to the name. And uh, it's always good, to pay, go, always good to see the faces of Mark and Lindsay Frazee anyways, right? <laughs> it always feels good to put a face to the name. And this year, as we explore God's invitation for us to be Jesus people, I believe that part of this year, part of God's invitation to be Jesus people is discovering what it means to be a people who don't just know the name of Jesus, but we know the face of Jesus. I think that our world needs help putting a face to the name. People have heard about Jesus in our culture, in our world, in your life, People have heard about Jesus. They've heard the name of Jesus. And a lot of people say they follow Jesus or a lot of people say this and that about Jesus. The name Jesus isn't that unfamiliar. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's great and carries a whole lot of weight in somebody's life. Sometimes it's a hashtag. Sometimes it's a marketing tool or a tattoo or a taboo. You know, it just depends on who you're talking to and when. And I think that in the hustle and the bustle 
in our world that surrounds the name of Jesus, it's easy to glaze over the reality that Jesus is alive and Jesus has a face. What I'm saying is that the truth is that so, so many people and so much of our culture are familiar with the name of Jesus, but so few people have seen the face of Jesus. We said this last week, Jesus did not come so that we could simply know about God. He came so that we could know God. Jesus came so that we could know God. And in Jesus, God has put a face to his name. So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. And a little bit of context of what's going on here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 to get us sped up before we kind of do a study this morning of a few things that are talked about. Uh, 2 Corinthians is written by a guy named Paul. He, is, he planted this church in uh, Corinthia? What is it? Corinth. Gosh. Wow. Indianapolis. That's where he planted it. And so the church is called the Corinthian Church. This is, he's, uh, in the Bible, in the New Testament, these two books, First and Second Corinthians, are letters that Paul wrote to this church because after he started it, he raised up some leaders and then he left to go start other churches, but he stayed in contact because he wanted to help as they grew, as they matured, as they figured things out because this whole Jesus people thing was brand new. Nobody had seen this before and knew what this was all about. So they had a lot, they had a lot to figure out. And in First and Second Corinthians, the reason Paul writes these letters, they're a little bit different each one, but really there's kind of this overarching reason is because he's writing to this church that he has started just because of the gospel. All he did was come and talk about Jesus. There's one verse he says, he was so smart, but he said, I didn't talk about how smart I was. I just talked about Jesus being crucified. That's how this church started. So he's, he started this church by just talking about Jesus, but as time has gone on, as things have happened, the gospel, the simplicity of Jesus has gotten foggy. It's gotten foggy for these people for a lot of reasons. Uh, there's been leaders that have kind of come into town and kind of manipulated the church. They've used it for their own gain, or they've kind of preached a message that kind of sounds like Jesus, but there's also some extra stuff. So the leaders have come in and they've kind of fogged up the gospel. Uh, there's, there's people in the church, actually. It, it wasn't just an idea, like there's real life people. And, uh, how many of you know people fog stuff up, right? There's a lot of people in this church and there's a lot of screwed up people and they're doing a lot of messed up things. If you read First and Second Corinthians, you think, I've heard so many people be like, we just need to do church like the Bible says. And it's like, have you read what they were doing? <laughs> Pretty messed up because people can still do stupid stuff even when they're following Jesus. But that doesn't make Jesus stupid. That'll set somebody free. So there's people in the church, they've been doing weird stuff and they've, their actions, their teachings, their lifestyles, they've fogged things up. Their sin has made stuff up. And then there's just this thing called life happening. And I think maybe if you've been following Jesus or, or just you know, lived your life for any amount of time, as life happens, more things happen and you kind of get more questions. And sometimes things that seem so sure stop seeming so sure. Am I right? So all that I'm trying to say is that things had gotten foggy for these guys. And, and, and my point is that it sounds a lot like today. Sounds a lot like today that, that there's a, the reality in our life that the gospel has gotten foggy in a whole lot of ways for a whole lot of people in church, out of church. Maybe it's for you. Maybe people you know in your life, family or friends, they, they, they say they don't want to go to church. They say they don't want Jesus. But when you listen to the reason why, it's kind of a foggy reason. It's not really about Jesus. 
Usually, you know, there's a lot of people that have uh, experiences, some good, a lot bad, frankly, with leaders in the church who have come in and manipulated this or that, and it kind of fogged up Jesus, right? Or some person said something or did something, offended me, this, that, and the other thing. They said they followed Jesus, but they were a hypocrite, and it kind of fogs stuff up. Or just you start following Jesus, and life starts to happen, and you start questioning, like, hey, this seems so clear in the beginning, it seems so easy and so straightforward, but then life started to happen. My point is that 2 Corinthians, that 2 Corinthians is uh, not just written to a church a long time ago. It's written straight to us, straight to us. And so Paul's strategy in clearing up the fog as he writes this letter is just to be really basic. And his one goal is just to remind them about the reason that they got into all of this in the first place. He started the church just talking about Jesus and Jesus crucified. That's what he said. And so he's coming back around and saying, I know that we, we started with Jesus, things got foggy, so let's just get back to Jesus. His real strategy is, I just want to talk about Jesus. He's trying to remind them, hey guys, remember, I know there's a lot going on, but don't get distracted. You're Jesus people. The purpose of all of this, the hope in all of this, it's just Jesus. So he's talking about Jesus here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and his, his main goal, he could have gone after all of these things. He, he could have gone after discrediting the guys who were weird. He could have gone after the sin in the church first about like this needs to get straightened up. He could have made excuses for this or explained this or that. And all of that is great, but he knows, and God knows through his word, look, what we need to know in our lives, that all of that's great, but at the end of the day, it's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to read um, a, a good chunk of verses. We're going to start in verse 4 of chapter 3, and we're going to end uh, either at the end of chapter 3 or verse 6 in chapter 4, depending on what I decide to do here in the next 30 seconds. Let's read these verses this morning, starting in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4. Paul starts off, he's writing to us, and he says this, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, in the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. Because of the glory, that surpasses it. Somebody say glory. <laughs> For if what was being brought to the end, brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have. <laughs> Since we have a, such a hope, uh, there's that word again. Hmm. I didn't even plan that. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We'll skip down to verse 5 of chapter 4. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said... 
let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, yeah. Amen and what? <laughs> That's a lot. There's a lot of stuff in there. We're going to start dissecting it, okay? Here in 2 Corinthians, Paul starts talking to this church to bring them back to center with, a verse in, with verse 4 of chapter 3, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. We've got to capture this because we just read a lot and there's a lot of stuff mentioned. But here's where Paul kind of gives the thesis of his, of his letter right here, the thesis of this passage that we read. The whole point of what he's trying to say is he's saying, this is the confidence that we have before God through Jesus. And then he goes on. So that's the point that he's trying to make through everything that we just read. Is that making sense? So he's trying to say, I want to remind you of how confident you can be before God through Jesus. He's just talking about Jesus. So in order to explain this confidence, this confidence that he's saying that we have before God through Jesus, he begins to contrast these two covenants or two ministries. They're referenced the same things are referenced with a few different words. He, he's contrasting these two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. He lists off a few things. The old covenant he mentions is of the law or of the letter is how he refers to it. He says that it leads to death and he even calls it the ministry of condemnation. So the old covenant, the first covenant that he talks about, we'll call the covenant of condemnation. Sounds fun, right? That's covenant number one, the covenant that he's contrasting the covenant of condemnation to, number two, is the new covenant. He says it's the covenant of the spirit, not of the letter, but of the spirit. It doesn't lead to death, it leads to life. It's not a ministry of condemnation, it's a ministry of righteousness. And again, his whole point in verse four is that this is a covenant of confidence. We have a covenant of condemnation contrasted with a covenant of confidence. We tracking so far? I'm gonna stop asking that and just assume we're gonna be good to the end unless somebody leaves. So what are these covenants? This is where we're going to get into Bible study mode, okay? Because how many of you know that, that knowing the history of something usually helps you understand that something a little bit better? I used to think that I liked the idea of history. I took AP history in high school, and I got a three on the test, which means I did good enough to not fail, but not good enough for anybody to ever care that I took it. So there's that. It's good, it's good to know the history of something. Like if you want to know, if you want to understand the complexity of race relations in our nation right now, it's helpful to know some history, right? It's helpful to know if you're looking at somebody, if you see me jumping up and down on the front every Sunday or laying on the floor, and it's like, oh, yeah, it's probably because he's the pastor. He's one of those crazy charismatics. But if you know the history of what God pulled me out of, if you know the history of where God kept me from ever going, if you understand a little bit of the history, you start to understand what you're seeing a little bit more, amen? How many of you have a history? We're gonna talk about history a little bit this morning. To be understand 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and to be encouraged in the confidence that we're trying to get here from the word of God, that God's trying to communicate to us, to understand that, we gotta go back and do some history. He's talking about this old covenant. It starts way back in the book of Exodus chapter 19, okay? So I'm gonna give you an overview of like, what is it, 25 chapters of the Old Testament and it's gonna take just a couple minutes in Jesus' name, <laughs> by the grace of God. So in the book of Exodus, God, the point of the book of Exodus is God is establishing the nation of Israel as his people. He chose Israel to say, you're going to be the one nation that I'm going to dwell with. I'm choosing you because, not because you're better than everybody else, but because I have to choose one nation to show the rest of the nations how good I am. 
right? He has to single out one so that everybody else who's not with God says, it's better to be with God, isn't it? So that's the point of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 19, a lot has happened. They've come out of slavery, all this kind of stuff. And at Exodus 19, they're at this mountain called Sinai, and there's this massive encounter that happens, and God shows up on the top of the mountain. There's clouds and thunder and booming, and everybody's scared, rightfully so, I would think. Um, And God calls out of the mountain, Moses, come on up here. And he calls him in because he wants to give Moses a covenant. He wants to give him the law. He's trying to single out the people of Israel as his people. So who's ever heard of, by a show of hands, the Ten Commandments? Way to go. You're doing great in church this morning. So in Exodus 20 is when we get the Ten Commandments. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And we all know that God gave people the Ten Commandments, but we got to know why God gave the Ten Commandments. And I want to hit that real, real quick. I think that most people assume when they hear the Ten Commandments and when they see, okay, God called Moses in to give a law to the people and all that kind of stuff, is that God gives rules because that's what God does. God gives rules. He's a rule guy. God gives rules, and that's why God gave rules. But actually, he did it not because God makes rules. God gave rules because he was making a covenant. He wasn't just making rules. Okay, so read verses 5 and 6 with me of Exodus chapter 19. Do we have it? There we go. Now, this is God speaking to Moses. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all of the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God gave 10 commandments. Why? Because he was saying, I'm choosing you. I want you to be my people. I'm gonna make you a nation. You're gonna be priests under my name. I'm drawing you close, not just making rules. See, our paradigm needs to shift about God and who he is because God doesn't give rules because of his role as a dictator. God makes covenants because of his heart of a lover. God doesn't give rules because of his role as a dictator. He makes covenants because of his heart of a lover. Now, God is king. Jesus is king. I love that about Jesus. He's, what he says goes, I want to submit my life to him completely, absolutely. He is not to be mocked, and he is love. Right off the bat, God is trying to give himself to these people. He's not trying to make them earn anything. He's saying, I want to give you everything that I am. That's 19 and 20. The next 11, and 12, 11 or 12 chapters is all these guidelines, all these rules, all these laws, how to do just about everything. And in the midst of 11 or 12 chapters of law and rules, we can't forget the context that God is not being a dictator, he's being a lover. I heard somebody say it this way. The law, it was not a dictator giving laws. It was a husband during a wedding ceremony. These are the wedding vows. God's saying, I want you to be my people. I want to be married to you. So this is how we're going to make the house work. Rule number one, don't have any other gods before me. It's a fair rule of marriage. If we're going to be married, don't cheat on me. Starts making sense, huh? He's not just egotistical saying, oh, I'm God, worship me. He's lover. He wants to be close. Takes us all the way to chapter 31, or through 31. Chapter 32, everybody heard of the Ten Commandments. Who remembers the golden calf incident? Anybody? 
So while Moses is on the mountain getting all of this covenant from God, the people get impatient and they say, hey, I got an idea. That God who showed up in a cloud and boomed voice and all that stuff, that was not real. We all saw it, but it was not real. So let's melt our gold and make a golden cow and let's worship that. And let's pretend like it's the one that brought us out of Egypt. Let's be honest, we've all done it. So while Moses is on the mountain, this is what the people do. So in other words, during the wedding ceremony, they run off with another guy. Right? During the wedding ceremony, they can't even make it through the vows. That's chapter 32. Verse 33 comes around and God's saying, okay, that's how it's going to be. So he tells Moses, all right, I tried to give myself to you. You didn't want me. So go ahead into the promised land that I promised you, but I'm not going with you. This is amazing about God. God's so faithful that even when we're unfaithful, he still keeps his promise. He says, I promised you that nation, so I'm going to give it to you because I'm faithful, but I can't go with you because you don't want me. Moses hears this. Red flag. He doesn't want that. It, it, there's, a, there's a subtitle in Exodus chapter 3. It says, Moses' intercession. Okay? So Moses was a prophet of the Lord, and uh, you, you can kind of think of him. He's like, he's like a shadow of Jesus. There's these characters through the Old Testament. They're not Jesus. They're not God, but they're like a shadow. If you look at their lives and who they were and what their relationship with God was like, you begin to see what was actually, what was actually coming. Moses stands before God on behalf of a whole nation and says, God, please don't go. Sounds like Jesus. So Moses has this intercession. He comes to God and he says, God, okay, you, you told us where we're gonna go, but you didn't say who was gonna come with us. We need you. I don't just want your promise. I want your presence. In verse 14 of Exodus 33, God replies in this way. And God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. This word presence is used a whole bunch of other times in the Bible. 390 of the times that this is used in the Bible, it's translated not presence, but face. This is the heart of God, okay? People think the Old Testament's about an angry God who's just trying not to kill us. It's not true. It's garbage. It's all the love of God, Jesus, he's all in it. The point is this. In the Old Covenant, God's heart was still to give his face to his people, Okay? Chapter 34, this is the end. It's basically a replay of chapter 19. They did the law thing, that didn't work the first time. Chapter 34 pretty much starts a replay. And how does God start the replay? Verse 10, behold, I'm making a covenant. I'm making a covenant. He should have made rules as a dictator. Come on. But he said, no, I'm gonna make a covenant as a lover. In verses 29 through 33 of chapter 34, we're going to read these, uh, these verses in Exodus. It starts to make sense, not just of the background of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, but of the language of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, okay? You remember talking about a shining face and all these sorts of things? You remember that? Verse 29 in Exodus uh, 34. We may stop this message halfway through and pick up next week. We'll see. <laughs> Verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. 
Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken to him, spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak to him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he would tell the people of Israel what God said. And then the people of Israel would see the face of Moses and the skin of Moses' face would be shining. And Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went back in to be with God. We did it. We're all caught up. We're all caught up to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul begins bringing up this old covenant that we've been talking about. And he calls it the covenant of condemnation. Very interesting. Lost my place. Flip back to 2 Corinthians 3 if you're not there, like me. In verses 7 through 13, Paul begins drawing this contrast. We're going to read it again because it's a Bible study and that's what we do, right? Now, the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, it's starting to sound familiar, right? Came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Okay. Contrast. We're there. We're caught up. We got it. He, ta- he calls this, and, and we're, we're, we're calling it this morning, the covenant of condemnation. And we need to talk about this word condemnation because we don't like the word condemnation. And that's fair. <laughs> Who likes being condemned? The idea of being condemned, any of that at all. No, we don't like the word condemnation. We really don't like the word condemnation in church too, like at all, which is also really, really fair. But we, we have to understand condemnation. We shouldn't like condemnation, but we do need to understand condemnation. There's things about God or about kingdom or about life that you might not like, but it's good to dig in and try to understand. So we're going to lean in this morning. We got to understand condemnation because, again, like I said, so many people think that the Old Testament is God trying not to kill us, but it's not him at all. Condemnation, the, the idea of condemnation uh, is, is not a fake thing. I think, I, I don't know if you've been around church or what kind of church circles, but I think there's a lot of people that's like, Christians say like, condemnation is not even a thing. Like it's not even real. But this shows us that condemnation actually is very for real. Condemnation is for real, that, that we are far from God, that we have sin, and that moves us away from God, that we stand condemned before God because of our sin. That's for real. That is a real part of our story. But it's not the end of the story. It's not, not part of the story. It's just not the whole story. So we've got we've to understand this because we've got to start with the fact that understanding that we're, we're distant from God because of our own sin, not because God's a jerk. Under the old covenant, we're going to go through these things. Moses' face was shining, right? Why? Why was Moses' face shining? Moses' face shined because he had been meeting with the Lord in all of his glory, right? We heard the word glory about a thousand times. There's a lot of glory, so much glory. Moses comes out and his face is shining. The skin of his face is shining. His face was reflecting the glory of God. Everybody say reflecting. Touch your neighbor, say reflecting. 
His face was reflecting the glory of God. When he came off the mountain, what happens in Exodus 34? Everybody runs away. They see the glory on his face and they run away and they're, they're terrified. Why? Because light reveals things. And there was glory, there was light coming off of his face. And what did the light show? The previous chapter, the golden calf incident. They didn't forget. They saw the glory of God and it revealed that God was a lover trying to make a covenant. And look how they responded. Look what's in their heart. God's trying to show his heart, but all they saw was, was their own heart. We're the golden calf people. Our God is pure. Our God is love, but, but we're the golden calf people. So they run away. When they saw the reflection of God's glory, it revealed their brokenness. Like, have you ever, okay, I don't know if you've ever done this, but you've walked into a party underdressed. Anybody? Okay, been there plenty of times. Like, PJs were my jam in college, and I just showed up to things in PJs, and I was like, oh, nobody gave me the memo you weren't supposed to wear PJs. Like, that has to be a memo, right? But, okay, so just imagine you're, like, in PJs like me in college, and you walk into an event, and you all of a sudden realize, oh, this is a black tie event. Nobody said anything to you. Nobody's a jerk. Nobody's trying to kill you. You're just underdressed. This is what the Israelites feel when they see the, most, the glory of God on Moses' face. Moses didn't come out, you guys, judging them and all this stuff and being a hypocritical, judgy Christian, all that kind of stuff. It's just the glory of God. And they realized, oh, they weren't up to the standard, so they ran away. So Moses shields his face. But why does Moses shield his face? It's not so that they could talk to him. They could talk to him. It says that he just calls them back. Hey, guys, chill. It's fine. Come here. And he gives them the law. He says all of this stuff. And then he covered his face. They could talk to him. They just didn't want to because they could see everything that they weren't. So why did Moses shield his face? Verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 13, whoop, verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 3 tells us, Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Walk with me here. I'm going to really pray this comes out because it makes sense. God put a veil on Moses' face because God didn't like what the people saw in Moses' face. Okay? Moses was a shadow of things to come, but he was not what was to come. Amen? Moses was just a man in his own brokenness. He had been with the glory of God. God credited righteousness to him so that he could come into the glory of God, but he was not actually righteous. His faith, in his faith, Hebrews and Romans tells us that God credited righteousness because of his faith, but he was not righteous. So he is unrighteous, but he's led into the glory of God. He begins reflecting the glory of God. So in Moses' face, all people could see in the glory of God was their own brokenness because it was a broken reflection. It's like trying to see God through a broken mirror. It got foggy to the point that when people saw what should have been God, instead of coming close, they ran away. The nation of Israel, they looked at Moses. I mean, that was God for them. I mean, he's the guy, right? Like, I mean, it's the prophet Moses. What you see in Moses, that's, what you, that's the reflection of God. But he was giving a broken reflection. And what's God's heart? To draw you close. But what did they see in Moses' face? It pulled them away. 
So he said, Moses, I need you to cover your face. Because all they can see in you is themselves. I can't show myself through you because of your brokenness. Here's the point. This is the trap of condemnation in our lives, and this is the result of sin. That condemnation doesn't affect how God sees you. It affects how you see God. When they saw the glory of God, all they saw was themselves. This is how we know this. Later on, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. God has shown his light into our hearts, revealing the knowledge of the glory of God through the face of Jesus. In Exodus 34, what did sinners do when they saw the face of Moses? They ran because all they saw was themselves. All they saw was their condemnation. All they saw was their brokenness because Moses was broken. But what did sinners do when they saw the face of Jesus? They came close. They came to him last week, John 15, or Luke 15. Jesus is on a mountainside and he's got a crowd of sinners and tax collectors and they had all come. They had all come. Verse 14 says this, their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant meaning anybody who doesn't believe in Jesus, when you read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay. We talked about a lot. We still got a little ways to go. Paul's talking about this ministry of condemnation. The old covenant was a covenant of condemnation not because God was condemning us, but simply because we were condemned. So in the old covenant, God had to hide the face of his reflection because the reflection was broken. And Paul's making this point. This is the confidence that we have before God in Christ Jesus. Not the confidence that we have in Moses. That was not much confidence at all. And why is that relevant to your life? Because he's saying not the confidence that comes from the law, not the confidence that comes from what you can do, not the law that comes from any righteousness or the confidence that comes from any righteousness of your own. That is all in the covenant of condemnation. Isaiah says, even your righteousness is like dirty rags. There is nobody righteous, not even one. In the covenant of condemnation, the only view that we have of God is actually our own brokenness. We can't even actually see him. All we see is us. When they looked at Moses' face, they saw themselves. And this is what happens when you approach God according with condemnation. You come to see God, but all you see is yourself. 
This is the trap of condemnation, like I said. It's not affecting how God sees you. He's calling you close, but it does affect how you see him. There's a veil. Our confidence that we have in Christ before God is not that God can now tolerate us because of the blood of Jesus. The confidence that we have before God through Christ Jesus is now that we all with unveiled face stand before God, beholding his glory, not running away. Verse 18 says, with unveiled face. I've always read this assuming that it meant that our face was unveiled. But our faces were never veiled in the first place. It was Moses' face. It was God's face that was veiled. It says now, if it was all of our faces that were unveiled through Jesus, it would say, now we all with unveiled faces. But we all with unveiled face stand before God, beholding the glory of the Lord. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This is the confidence that we have in Jesus. Don't let it get foggy. Don't let condemnation fog up your view of God. Turn to Jesus. We need to be Jesus people. We've got to be Jesus people because we're living in a world of condemnation. And I'm condemnation has even become really cool in church. It is not cool in heaven. It's not. It's not cool to Jesus. He died on a cross to reveal that condemnation is not the thing to unveil us from condemnation, to not look at God according to our brokenness anymore. But Jesus comes, the face of God, the same God who said, let there be light, is saying, let there be light in your soul. Let there be light as you see my righteousness. Jesus is not just God's reflection. He is the radiance of the glory of God. We read it last week. No longer are we under a covenant. Are we in a relationship with God where his reflection comes through our brokenness? It's actually his revelation comes through the radiance of himself. This is Jesus. Everything that you need to know about God, it's in the face of Jesus. It's not in the law of, oh, I don't need to read this like I should or shouldn't do this or that. Do you know that when you come to this, you're not coming to this to read yourself. God did not give you his word to point out all the things that are wrong with you. God gave you his son so that he could point out all the things that are right with him. In the face of Jesus, we see that God is not concerned with telling you how wrong you are. He is only concerned with telling you how good he is. This is the confidence that we have in Christ Jesus before God. That when we come before God, we don't come in fear and trembling saying, Oh no, don't, don't kill me. I'm just a piece of trash. I'm just a sinner. I'm just all of these things. No, he welcomes us in to show us how good he is. That is what Jesus is concerned about. Otherwise, he would not be able to die on a cross next to a sinner. He would not be able to wash dirty people's feet. He's not concerned about the dirt on your feet. He's not concerned about the sin that puts you on a cross. He'll get on a cross to chase you down there and find you so that you can see the face of God. This is the confidence that we have toward God in Christ Jesus. I think we should worship. I think we should worship. I want you to stand up as we uh, get ready to worship. What else can we do? What else can we do? We've got to be Jesus people. This is the invitation of God this year, not into doing more for God. 
We said last week, this isn't a salvation. Salvation's not a destination. It's not just a destination, it's an invitation. Because if we think that, that Jesus came to accomplish something for us, we'll think that the only reason we're saved is to accomplish something for him. But he didn't come to just do something. He came to show someone. He came to show someone, and this is the invitation of your life, to not just come and do things for God, but to come and know God. Come and know God himself. Does that sound good to anybody? We can be free. This is our confidence. And so as we, as, we end this, as we end this morning, as we worship and spend a few minutes just in the presence of God, in the face of God, I want you to open up your eyes. I want you to turn to Jesus. Let him remove the veil of condemnation in your life. Are you approaching him, expecting him to just tell you everything that's wrong with you? Are you approaching him, expecting, you to, expecting him to point out all the reasons you don't measure up? Do you come to his word just waiting to hear how you can't do it? Waiting to hear. I heard somebody just this week, they told me, man, I was reading this verse and I just got so ashamed. I said, that's the devil. That's the devil. Anything in your life that pushes you from God is the devil. Condemnation, it's not of God. It's not cool. The truth is that condemnation is a real thing. But the rest of the story is there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the confidence that we have in Christ toward God. Let the Holy Spirit come into your life. Show you where you're living condemned and let it go. Look to Jesus. See the face of Jesus. Press in and say, God, I need to see your face. I need to see your face. I don't need to see myself. I need to see your face. Will you let yourself go this year? Will you let yourself go in this moment? Release what you aren't and see who he is. This is a Jesus people. Because we're free. This is the spirit of the Lord. And where he is, there's freedom. invite you into freedom as we worship I don't know what it looks like for you it might be an outward expression it might not be the truth is if you don't think it's an outward expression you probably need to show an outward expression call it emotional religious all you want but try it I'm telling you you need to let something go let the condemnation go let it go Jesus has so I'm going to pray for us, and I just want to worship, and I want to invite you to let the Holy Spirit come and release you from condemnation, release you from an old covenant. Yes, it had some glory, but this new glory far surpasses it, the face of Jesus. Jesus, would you come, Holy Spirit, and would you show us your face? Show us your face this morning. Open up our hearts and teach us to let it go. Teach us to let it go, God. Don't, we don't want to be the thief on the cross that chided you got so caught up in how broken we are that we don't even turn to you. We want to be the one who says, God, help. Set me free. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into these moments. Show us the face of God. Put a face to the name of Jesus.